Welcome listeners to a brand new bonus episode of Oh My Word Podcast. And today we have a really special treat because we have got an agent, Brent Taylor from Triada US, is here with us to just tell us all the secrets. Well, welcome, first of all, but that's why you're here, right? Yes, thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to speak with you today. And yes, I am completely willing and excited to spill all the secrets that I can. Yay! I kind of just said that, but now I'm thinking, well, what secrets do I hope to find out? I don't know. Okay, no promises about secrets, but who knows? We always start from the beginning of, okay, so you're a literary agent, your short, long answer. How does one become a literary agent? What, what was the path you took? I think everyone in publishing has a unique story about how they came into book publishing. I became an agent because when I was a teenager, I started following my favorite authors online. And I noticed that they would talk about their agent or their editor, their publicist. And I was so fascinated that there were people beyond the author that played a role in a book's publication. So I started doing research and looking into what each person did and what their job title was and their job responsibilities. And the agent's job appealed to me the most because it felt the most entrepreneurial while also still being very creative. So as an agent, you're doing a lot of business-minded things like negotiating a deal, having an auction for a book, selling a book in all sorts of different languages abroad, negotiating contracts, reviewing royalty statements, auditing royalty statements, while also working editorially with authors on their manuscripts before you send them out to publishers. And then once you've sold a book to a publisher, weighing in to your client about what you think about the book's cover or the marketing and publicity plans. So the job is very unique in the sense that you get to use both sides of your brand. You get to be very creative and you you get to be very entrepreneurial and dig into numbers and all those sorts of things. So I did internships with agencies, responding to queries for agents and reading their manuscripts and writing reports on them. And then the last internship that I did was with my current boss, Uva Stender, who is the president of our agency. And it was such an incredible experience. And we got along so well that he offered me a job at the end of that internship. And that was eight years ago. So I've been here ever since. That's amazing. Just to backtrack with some follow-up questions, did you do any sort of college specifically for this or most of it was internships is really what got you learning the industry and into the industry and all that sort of stuff? Yeah, so people are always shocked to hear that I did not go to college. I completely skipped college. I did the internship with Triada US when I was 18 years old, actually. Oh, wow. Yes, and I sold my very first book when I was 19 years old. Wow! (laughs) Oh my goodness! I don't know if this is true or not, so I'm going to say right now it might not be true, but I'm going to pretend that you are the youngest agent to have sold a manuscript, (laughs) at least on this podcast, but you are... That's amazing! Yes, I think so. And on that same note, I said to my boss a a couple weeks ago, one of my amazing clients, Reggie LaRocca, just won a Newbery Honor for her book, Red, White, and Whole. And I said to my boss, has there ever been an agent that's 26 years old and and has a Newbery Honor book? 
and he didn't think so. So earlier in my career, my age was something that I was very embarrassed about. I didn't really tell a lot of people. And then as I've accomplished these different milestones, it's something that I've become proud about. Yeah, you don't have to be a specific age to make things happen. So mm-hmm. that's amazing. Wow. Wow. So you did start interning or that you're working with all these places. What do you like you specifically do to kind of keep an eye on the industry or when you're taking clients, it's less about as much as you know, what's going on with the industry, but it's really more about the books that, you know, I want to see more of these on the shelves. I really like these kind of books and I'll figure out how to sell it to the industry. I think a lot about that. I really do. And my feeling is that people who work in the industry, so agents and editors and all sorts of gatekeepers in the in the publishing world. I feel like we tend to get way too caught up in looking at what sort of books we think sell well and what sorts of books we should set out to publish and work on. And I really don't like to think about things in that way. I like to be a reader first and foremost. I approach every single element of my job as someone who just loves books so much as a reader first and foremost. So when I'm looking at my inbox and the manuscripts that writers are submitting to me, I'm really never thinking about trends and what is easy to sell and what is difficult to sell. I'm just approaching things as a reader as if I'm in Barnes & Noble trying to pick out a book that I want to read because it just appeals to my soul as a reader. I really try to sign on the projects that I love that I connect with without thinking about what the market really looks like. And I think that's when my instincts are at their best. Yeah, well, whatever the trend is today, it's not the trend tomorrow also, or by the time the book gets published. Yeah, writers kind of fall into that. Like, oh, this is what's out there. I must write this. No, everything changes. Just to ask, because for a writer, before I send a manuscript out or even until I get to the point of, let's say, working with an editor, let's say I've looked at the manuscript, maybe, okay, I'm exaggerating, I'll say about like, you know, four bazillion times or, you know, at least four, five, six, seven, eight, nine times however many amount of times when you're looking at it and especially as an editorial agent are you looking at the manuscript two three times or are you also looking at it like seven eight nine ten times before you'll send it out to an editor yes that is a great question it definitely depends on which agent you ask for me personally i do not tend to be that editorial i will read a manuscript perhaps two to three times before we send it out on mm-hmm. submission to publishers And if a manuscript needs editorial work to the point where it's taking more like seven to eight rounds, then usually I just do not have the capacity to take that project on to my list because I have so many amazingly prolific writers on my list. I find that the projects that I take on and offer representation on, they tend to be further along in the editorial process and don't need as much work. So that's how my personal agenting style that's what it looks like when it comes to editorial Mm -hmm. and just because you mentioned also that you had some prolific writers agenting is very is all commission based correct usually yeah usually Mm -hmm. so how many on average and i guess obviously there's gonna be ballpark guesstimates how many books do you have to sell a year Okay, I guess that's a tricky question, but a saying on an average contract or a month or something like that, like I better make sure I'm selling four or five, six books or something, you know, to make sure that I'm going to make a decent living or is it way more than that, way less than that? I know it kind of depends, but what's sort of like a broad guesstimate of these numbers? I think that perhaps each agency and agent kind of keeps track of their goals differently. I have never, I've never given myself a goal or a quota or whatever to keep track of. 
it puts you in a really difficult mindset. And I prefer to just wake up every day and have my North Star be working on beautiful books for the kid and teen readers that need them. I find that like if that is my North Star and that is my goal every day, that's when the success follows. And I think that if I if I tried to tell myself, you know, I want to sell X amount of books in X amount of time period, I think that I would psych myself out. And I think I would find it really difficult to actually achieve that goal. Mm. So instead, I just tried to be committed to putting out amazingly beautiful books out there that make a difference in the lives of kids and teens. Um, and as long as I'm in that mindset, I tend to sell plenty of books. Do you apply that same attitude toward the writers that you represent of whenever you got something, you send it over, bring it on us. Are they going to be checking on them every month? Like, hey, I haven't seen anything from you yet. Or do you sort of sometimes have to do that? Of just making sure you're okay. Let me know if you need me, hint, hint. The author-agent relationship, it looks different with every single client. I actually really love that. You kind of find what works for the two of you and, and you figure out your relationship as time goes on. So I do have clients that they are off for certain periods of time quietly working and I don't hear from them for a while and I don't have to check in with them. They'll reach out to me when they're ready. And then I do have clients that really appreciate a gentle check-in. They would say that it, it kind of helps hold them accountable and motivates them to keep steady progress on their projects. So it looks differently with each relationship. That makes sense. So it's kind of like a coach-ish. Yes, I definitely think you could look at an agent as a coach. And then just go all the way back. When you said that you followed certain writers when you were younger, and as you were growing up and you were checking out that's where you heard about agents and the whole other side of writing. Just throwing out some names there. Who are some of those writers that you used to follow? Or if you still read them? Yes. So that was when I was a teenager. And I was reading a lot of YA, not so many children's books. But I really loved A.S. King and her book, Please Ignore Vera Deeds. Amy King is just such an amazing writer. The most recent book of hers that I am just in love with is her novel Dig, which won the Prince Medal a few years ago. Okay. And I really loved, when I was a teenager, Melissa Dela Cruz. Mm -hmm. She was one of my favorite authors. I loved Sarah Dessen. I think when I was a teen reader, every teenager loved Sarah Dessen. So those were the sorts of authors that I was reading back then. And then now, I read a lot more middle grade now as an adult than I did even when I was a kid or a teen, which is hilarious. Yeah. Middle grade novelist that I really love. My number one favorite author has to be Kathy of Helt. I will read any book that she writes, but specifically the book of hers that means the whole wide world to me is called Keeper. And I also really love The Best Man by Richard Peck. That's an all-time favorite. And then I really love the Penderwick series. So that kind of gives a snapshot of my reading taste. When you got into agenting, did you specifically set out to represent either young adult, middle? It seems like you do young adult, middle grade, and picture books. You kind of do the whole younger audience. Is that correct? Correct. In terms of my personal reading, I read everything. I read adult fiction and adult nonfiction as well. So when I became an agent, I was open to it all. And then as the years went by, I realized that as a reader, I always want to read everything under the sun. But as an agent, I feel most comfortable in the children's book world and I feel most skilled 
in the children's book world. So as an agent, I only do picture books through young adult. And I will represent the occasional adult novel if one of my existing clients chooses to write an adult project. So leading into that, for a writer, when we have to look for getting a book out there, our main focus is looking at agents. A lot will also look at editors and either work backwards, see who those editors work with, or just because you met the editor, send figure out like that. But that's kind of where it goes for us. But as an agent, which way are you looking or how are you keeping tabs on the industry? If you have an adult thing that you're not really used to, so what do you do about that? It's a whole load of questions, but... I am really lucky to have such amazing colleagues. We are wow. a really close-knit agency, and we work so closely together with one another. So I can always rely on their expertise. We have a lot of fabulous agents that do a lot more adult than I do. And apart from that, to go to the first part of your question, how I kind of keep tabs on the industry, I'm not really a social media person. So because of that, I have to find a different way to stay on top of what's happening in the industry. And the way that I like to do it in terms of what is most useful to my job as an agent. So I need to know the editors and the publishers and their sensibilities, what they have published and what they are looking to publish, right? I need to know all of that in order to be effective at my job. And one of the ways that I can keep on top of that is just voraciously reading. So I just read what is out there. I read the books that speak to me and go into the bookstore and walk out with way too many books. (laughs) And so I read the book and I finish it and I pay attention to who the editor was. And so that's the way that I really love to keep tabs of the publishers and the editors and their individual tastes and personalities is just by reading and paying attention to who worked on those books. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, you actually look at the work that they did. Yeah. Yes. Would you say it's a different mindset or a different brain when you have to read manuscripts either from your clients or from queries and then going into a bookstore and picking up books? Or is it all just, I love reading so much, I'll read it in any form sort of thing for you personally? It's definitely different because when I'm picking up a book from Barnes & Noble, it has been edited, right? And That's true. The story is really in good shape and you can truly enjoy it. And I definitely notice even manuscripts that blow me away, even manuscripts that I fall in love with, you can still tell that there's a lot of work to be done before it's a printed book. Right. And there are still kind of rough edges throughout the story. So for me, it is very different. And then also because you're keeping tabs on the industry. Like we say for writers, a lot of people who want to be writers, well, you also have to read what's out there. A, because you don't want to write what someone else wrote, but also because you got to know your industry, right? You got to know your market. But, you know, there's only so many books you can read. So for you, would you say just walking around the stores and you see what's there, if you read 10% of that, okay, that's a bad number. But if, you know, if you read 10 books, okay, numbers aren't a good thing. But if you read a couple of them, but you're, you're just looking and reading the jacket or you're reading this, that, whatever, that kind of keeps you in tune with the industry well enough, That was kind of a bungled question, but did it eventually make sense? It did eventually make sense. I agree with you. I think what I would say is that it should not feel like work. It should not even feel like homework, to be honest. If you're going to be successful in this business as a writer or as an agent or an editor, you should love books from the deepest depth of your heart. And if you do, then I feel like it's very easy. It's like a 
a natural instinct for you to be keeping on top of what's out there in the market because theoretically nothing would stop you from reading and it's something that you're already doing all the time because you just love it so much. Right. When it comes to award-winning books, which is obviously great for everybody who's part of that, but for you and also part of keeping tabs on the industry, do you feel like, well, I better really know the books that have won awards or it's not necessarily like that. It's still just because a book has won an award, if it's not necessarily a book I'd pick up, I won't necessarily pick it up just because it won an award. I think everybody could kind of come to their own conclusion of what works for them. And I think the same can be said of a New York Times bestseller list. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, if one of your goals is to be a New York Times bestseller, should you read the bestsellers? Right. I really love just throughout the year buying and reading the books that I think sound good. And it's always, like, really fun when a major award is announced and you've already read that book. Yeah. That tends to happen to me a lot. So I think that you should just be reading what appeals most to you without feeling pressure to pick out the books that are major award winners or bestsellers. Right. Well, I guess that's also how you could get the niche books. The audience might not be as wide, but it's a more dedicated audience. You know, one of that kind of thing. So you're not going to find that if you're only reading the broad uh, categories. Certainly. Yeah, something like that. Yes. I actually, okay, I once saw, I don't remember where it was. I have to do a better job, like actually marking where I see things. But it was this article about how the New York Times bestseller list. I don't know if you could comment on this, but sometimes the New York bestseller list, if there's a book that has a lot of hype and a lot of pre-sale, it can get itself on the bestseller list, even though like the books, basically if the marketing campaign is like that aggressive, it can get a book on the bestseller list, whether or not it's actually this book that's wild, the most amazing book I've ever read sort of thing. Is that true? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I, I believe it is true. Yes. And okay. the thing that we have noticed as agents and publishers is that we'll kind of look at the numbers and you'll have a, a book that is not on the list sells more copies than a book that is on the list in that given week. Huh. Um, and it's very confusing. So the New York Times list is definitely editorialized. Their editors kind of make editorial decisions about what books go on and what books don't. Oh, that's interesting. Is there a list that exists that's really just a by-the-numbers list? Yes, I believe BookScan, but that is something you have to subscribe to, and okay. it costs thousands of dollars. So for the most part, it's just publishing professionals oh. that have access to it. It's not a list that consumers pay attention to. Yeah, I don't think I would pay thousands of dollars just to... <laughs> Damn, I can exactly. That. Yeah. Well, that's interesting exactly. also, because that can show that just because a book is on New York Times bestseller doesn't mean it's not a good book. And just because it's on there, it, doesn't, it was necessarily the best book published that week. There could be a lot of factors involved in that. That's interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, does that make you worry about sometimes other awards that are given for books? Because even though I don't know that there's that many books that someone's actually read and be like, why is this one an award, right? That's not the same as just, you know, we're pretending like this book sold the most this week. Or am I going down a dark path right now? Yeah. To answer your question, it doesn't make me worried at all. I still <laughs> believe in the integrity of the amazing awards that are in our industry. And it is still an incredible accomplishment to yeah. be a New York Times bestseller. So I really believe in the integrity of those things. So it doesn't make me worried. That's true. Okay, we won't throw it all under the bus. Okay, we'll keep it. <laughs> we will. <laughs> yeah, 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 okay. It's good to know in the sense of just because a book doesn't say New York Times bestseller doesn't mean you shouldn't give it a chance sort of thing. Especially for Absolutely. people who are people who are not reading as much, be open to looking at other things 
I guess that's kind of like a good takeaway from this. That's my takeaway. Certainly. Yeah. And it's very funny. I always find it so hilarious to talk to my friends and family that are not in the book world, who are not even really big readers at all. Because they'll say things to me like, if we're in a bookstore together, they're like, oh my gosh, I feel like every single book I pick up says New York Times bestseller (laughs) on it. You know, and they're like, is every book a New York Times bestseller? And um, you do not even know the half of it. (laughs) You know, I want to tell them all the stories of all these books where we're heartbroken that they're not on the bestseller list. So it's funny to hear that perception from people who are not readers. Right. I'd be looking into a product or an item in an industry that I don't know about. I would look for something that had a notable star or something next to it, right? And that would be like, oh, it must be a better product. And it could be. It's not saying that it's not. It's just saying because I don't know, that's going to be my go-to, right? So that's just... Yeah, we have to spread the word of looking at other books. Well, so for international bestsellers, any country that's not the U.S. that it becomes a bestseller in makes an international bestseller. You know, are there totally different criteria for that? Each territory has their own sort of bestseller list that is the most important to them. Right, okay. You know, the same way that in the U.S. our kind of biggest bestseller list is the New York Times. But I think it works the same in all those different territories. It's just they each have their own publication that is the most important to them. The real question is, can I go to a tiny island somewhere and then sell 100 copies of my book and it's a bestseller on the tiny island and then I'm now an international bestseller? You have cracked the code. <laughs> Eventually, we did come to the secret. <laughs> we did. That is the big secret of this podcast episode, for sure. <laughs> well, first of all, it involves going to an island. So, you know, all in favor. We'll have to find a place with nice blue waters. It doesn't say how much the book has to sell for. I can sell it for, you know, a quarter nickel dime. I can be best, an international bestseller. So it's very exciting. There you go. <laughs> you have been so helpful today. I'm so glad to have been helpful. Just also because as speaking to an agent, even though people can look this up online about you, general idea of what sort of stories you usually look for or that you're usually drawn to? Yes, I really love books that, whether they're commercial or literary, books that just have a beating heart to them. And when you finish them, you kind of want to hug them to your chest. (laughs) So in terms of me trying to describe the books that I'm looking for, I would say that my tastes are upmarket. And what I mean by that is I love when a book has a really strong commercial concept, but is very beautifully written and very rich with emotion. So upmarket is kind of considered the way to describe a book that has the best of both worlds in the sense that it is commercial, but it's also literary. And I work on, as I mentioned earlier, you know, everything from picture books, fiction and nonfiction up to young adult. And I also love graphic novels. I love novels in verse, poetry. When it comes to children's books, I really love everything under the sun. Wow. To follow up on it, when people say literary, I sort of understand it in terms of, it makes me think of something that would be in a literature class versus something that would be any of these books that they're just kind of churning out. Just like, you know, well-written, but not there's nothing, anything specific about the writing. It's more about the story. And then literary, it seems like there's a bigger emphasis. I'm like, let's actually study the words of this. So is that kind of what it is or is that the total misconception? I think you articulated it beautifully. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yes. Sometimes you come across these writers that their writing is incredibly lyrical. So that would automatically put it into a literary kind of category. But not only that. For me, yes. Okay, okay. Or it could be someone, I guess, who has heavy symbolism or like that also. So it's it goes beyond just the well-written story to actual, I guess, there's more attention to the actual word than just having the story flow, I guess. 
Okay, now I'm going to confuse Absolutely. it a little bit. Yeah, okay, yeah. I think it's about the craft, the craft of the writer and the way that they told that story and whether they told it in a really artistically excellent way. And I would say Dogman and Diary of a Wounded Kid, those books are commercial. Yes, okay. And then, you know, a book like Charlotte's Web, that book is literary. Books that win the Newbery, those books are literary. And there is such a place for both commercial and literary in the world, and, and kid readers need both. And I love both, and I work on both. So I, I feel very lucky to be in this role where I get to work on all sorts of important books. Right. Yeah, amazing. Well, because you see the way agents describe sort of things that they're looking for, and then sometimes if you think twice about it, you're like, what do they mean by that? So I'm glad we get to clarify that. I gotta ask you one question before we wrap up. Would you say if someone tells you, sometimes if you ask someone about a book and they kind of make a face or they kind of, oh, it was a very easy read, would you say that could be a very good thing or you're like, no, find better words to, to describe it sort of thing? I don't find it offensive to call something an easy read because I think that in this day and age, sometimes an easy read is like the best thing you could possibly have. I certainly, my personal reading will pick up novels that are very complex and dense and enjoy reading those when I have a really long weekend. But when it's a really busy, stressful week at work, sometimes it is the best thing in the world for me to crawl into bed at 10 p.m. and have a romance novel that I consider to be an easy read to kind of really just escape into and enjoy during that really stressful period in time. So I think instead of being offended by hearing someone say that, you know, a book is an easy read, I would just instead delight in the fact that in this world, sometimes an easy read is exactly what we need and is such an essential thing. They probably could even make a good case that there is a certain skill involved in being able to make an easy read. All writing can be hard or easy, so is that the idea with what yes. the read's going to be? Yeah. I completely agree with you. Oh, cool. Yay. Okay. I do always wrap up with this fill-in-the-blank kind of question of using any of these, so whichever one for either part of the fill-in-the-blank, of I really like it when writers, editors, publishers, fellow agents, book covers, stories whatever, bookstores, libraries, any of that, do X. And I really don't like it when any one of these do X. So how would you kind of fill in the blank for that? Okay. I really love it when writers write the story that is in their hearts and the story that cracks open their own heart. Because I think that is the secret ingredient to a novel that is going to crack open readers' hearts. And I really don't like it when writers write what they think will work in the market because I think that kind of throws their storytelling instincts off and I think that when writers are writing from their heart um, that's when they're really cracking deep into you know the, the emotions that readers are going to connect with most so I think novels are their best and their most successful when writers have approached their writing careers from that sort of perspective. Amazing. That's like sort of the idea that for writers feeling something while they're writing it, it will get through to the reader, whatever that emotion is going to be sort of. Yeah. Wow. Very good. Brian, it was so nice to speak with you. Thank you so much for being a guest today on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. This was a bonus episode of Oh My Word podcast featuring agent Brent Taylor. To find out more about Brent and his work, please check out the link in the episode notes.
Find out more about Oh My Word Podcast and keep track of all the great stuff we're up to. Follow us on Instagram at Oh My Word Podcast or please check us out at eltedamount.com. Music is by Tim Burke. Thank you so much for joining us. Catch you next time.